Section 10 of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 7 Saint Theodora. Part 2. Theodora now had supreme power and her first care was to restore the worship of images, in spite of her heavy oaths to Theophilus. In this she needed diplomacy, as well as casuistry, since the learned patriarch John, as well as the majority of the senators, were opposed to images. There was, moreover, a council of regency, consisting of three of the abler officials of the court, the first of them, Theoclistos, the eunuch keeper of the purple ink, was an official of some ability, and so devoted to Theodora that, in spite of his condition, the gossip of the city associated the saint and the eunuch in a most unedifying manner. The second member was Manuel, an uncle of Theodora and an iconoclast. The third, her brother Bardas, a man of equal ability and unscrupulousness who could be relied upon either to worship or to break an image according to his interest. It was to this man, in spite of notoriously immoral life, that Theodora entrusted the tutorship of the young prince, and there cannot be the slightest doubt that Michael was deliberately educated in vice and sensuality in order to divert his attention from political power. St. Theodora was to be the mother of the Nero of the Eastern Empire. The first step was taken in the restoration of images shortly after the beginning of the Regency. Michael fell dangerously ill, and at one time he was believed to be dead. The monks came from the great monastery of Studion, the most fiery center of orthodoxy, to pray over the remains of the iconoclast, a singular procedure and it was presently announced that he had miraculously recovered his life and was converted to the worship of images in this new zeal he pressed the empress to remove the impious restriction on piety and for a time she resisted pleading the sanctity of her oath knowing constantinople as we do we have little difficulty in regarding the whole procedure as a comedy at length a council was summoned in the house of Theoclistus, and the reform was sanctioned. The patriarch John was now ordered to convoke a synod. He refused, and the way in which that obstacle was removed so well illustrates the character of Constantinople, if not of Theodora, that it is worth describing. John was one of the most learned men of his time, a genius in physical science and mechanical art. His rationalistic opposition to the popular cult of relics and statues, however, gave a dark aspect to his learning, and he was commonly regarded as a magician and a secret libertine. Men told each other of the subterraneous chamber which he had in his brother's house for entertaining nuns and other pretty women. In reality, he seems to have been a learned and conscientious man, and even when Bardas cruelly flogged him, he refused to submit to the empress's wish and relieve her from her oath. 
The report was given out from the palace that he had inflicted the marks of the scourge on himself, and had even attempted to commit suicide. He was at once deposed and confined in a monastery, and when it was reported to Theodora, no doubt falsely, that he had there pricked the eyes out of a picture of Christ, she angrily sentenced him to lose his own eyes and to receive two hundred strokes of the loaded scourge. He had been one of the chief pillars of her husband's reign. His friends, I may add, retorted by accusing the new patriarch Methodius of rape, but decency prevents me from describing how the archbishop happily escaped the charge by proving in open court that St. Peter had miraculously relieved him from temptations of the flesh many years before. The new patriarch convoked a synod, and crowds of monks flocked to Constantinople from all parts to encourage the good work, and march through the streets of Constantinople under their sacred ensigns. Theodora surprised the bishops and abbots, as they sat in conclave, by demanding that they should issue a guarantee that her husband was absolved from his sins. It was a dangerous precedent, and they protested that they had no power to give such an assurance. Theodora then explained that she had presented a sacred image to Theophilus in his last hour, and that he had embraced it fervently. Modern historians are ungallant enough to disbelieve her story, and no doubt there were many at the time who distrusted Theodora's casuistic ability but when she proceeded to hint that image-worship would not be restored unless they satisfied her, they decreed that the sins of Theophilus had been undone by repentance. At the conclusion of the synod, Theodora entertained the holy men in her Carian palace, or palace built entirely of the famous Carian marble, at Blackernay. Near the end of the banquet, when the cakes and sweets were being served, her eye fell on the grim disfigured face of the religious poet Theophanes. He had come from Palestine to Constantinople during her husband's reign to fight for the images, and Theophilus had sent him into exile with no less than twelve lines of bad verse tattooed on his face, announcing that he was a wretched vessel of superstition. Theophanes marked the tearful gaze of the empress, and impetuously cried that he would not forget to ask the judgment of God on Theophilus for the outrage. "'Is this the way you keep your promise?' she exclaimed excitedly, and the bishops had to intervene and appease her and the martyr. This restoration of image-worship seems to be the one virtue which ensured for Theodora a place in the Greek canon of the saints on 11th February. That she led a chaste life we need not doubt for a moment. The rumor of amorous relations with Theoclistus is foolish gossip, and a man named Gibo, who afterwards claimed to be her natural son, was either an impostor or a lunatic but the shallowness of her piety and weakness of her moral character are too plainly revealed in the debauching of her son by her own brother, into whose care she gave the young emperor. The historian Finlay observes that, in the series of Byzantine emperors from Leo III to Michael III, 
only two proved utterly unfit for the duties of their station and both appear to have been corrupted by the education they received from their mothers when we reflect on the strange types of men whom the disordered life of the empire brought to the throne this is a terrible impeachment of irene and theodora and it is a just impeachment no man was less fit than her brother bardas to train a youth and the only conceivable palliation of theodora's guilt is that she wished to retain power in the interest of the church how even that hope was mocked and the rule of her son ended in debauchery and murder in her own house we have next to consider for some ten years the empire enjoyed comparative peace and prosperity the bulgarians learning that a woman and a child ruled the empire made inflated demands but theodora met them with admirable firmness and averted war her only grave blunder was the ruthless persecution of heresy she sent officers to convert the masses of paulicians in the eastern provinces and whether with her consent or no they perpetrated horrible butcheries in the name of religion and engendered a civil war then as michael approached his sixteenth year a series of terrible internal troubles and disorders set in gladly following the example of his tutor bardas the young emperor fell in love with the beautiful daughter of a high official of the court named inger eudocia ingerina is described by one of the writers of the court of constantine the seventh her grandson as one of the most beautiful and most modest women of her time the course of this narrative will show that she was as most of the chroniclers say one of the most dissolute women of the time second only to theodora's daughter thecla whether she betrayed her laxity even at this early age or whether theodora merely dreaded an alliance of her son with a distinguished officer we cannot confidently say the chroniclers suggest that she was already the lover of michael and that theodora and theoclistus interfered they compelled michael to marry another eudocia daughter of the patrician decapolita we do not know the fate of this lady and may trust that she did not live to see the more sordid phases of her husband's life it seems that very shortly after the marriage he resumed his relations with the daughter of inger bardas now began to force his ambition more openly and get rid of the members of the council of regency he first by means of theoclistus drove his uncle manuel into private life and then turned upon theoclistus who ventured to remonstrate with him about his notorious liaison with his own daughter-in-law fearing for his life theoclistus built a house close to the palace communicating with it by an iron door which was carefully guarded and continued to administer the empire in conjunction with theodora there is some indication that theodora's three sisters sophia maria and irene also had some share in the administration bardas pointed out to his pupil that he was improperly excluded by them and suggested that theodora intended to marry theoclistus and have michael's eyes put out when therefore theoclistus next went to read his report to theodora he was intercepted by a group of the servants of bardas 
who in the name of the emperor demanded his papers a scuffle took place and theoclistus was imprisoned and presently murdered in his cell one of the chroniclers would have us believe that one of theodora's daughters actually witnessed the murder on behalf of her brother theodora was beside herself when the news reached her that her favorite minister had been murdered she is described as roaming about the palace with dishevelled hair weeping and upbraiding her son and brother the natural result was that they decided to remove her and she saw that her rule had come to an end she summoned the senators and laid before them a financial statement of the affairs of the empire she had so well husbanded the funds left by theophilus that a store of gold and silver amounting to many million pounds of our coinage besides chests of jewels and other treasure were at the disposal of the state i tell you this she shrewdly added in order that you may not readily believe my son the emperor if when i have quitted the palace he tells you that i left it empty she saluted the senators laid down her power and quitted the imperial palace but michael and bardas were not content as theodora and her daughters went to the palace at blackernay they were arrested by her elder brother petronus shorn of their hair and confined in the dress of nuns in the carrion palace at blackernay they continued however to regard the proceedings at court with close interest and were transferred to the palace monastery of gastria across the water from her near exile theodora watched the next dramatic phase of the quarrel it was in the year eight fifty six apparently that theoclistus was murdered and she forced to resign and the next ten years witnessed a repellent development of michael's vices he had passed into history under the name of michael the drunkard but drunkenness was not the worst of his vices he lived in open association with eudocia ingerina and filled the palace with scenes that had been banished from roman life with the death of nero the only point that can be urged in favor of byzantine morals is that the drastic legislation and action of earlier emperors had checked the spread of unnatural vice apart from this michael the drunkard ranks with nero and caligula and in respect of some kinds of grossness surpasses them only the more repellent pages of zola's la terre offer an analogy to the coarse practices which michael rewarded in the abominable circle he gathered about him it is enough to say that the filthiest of his friends dressed in the vestments of the archbishop and had eleven followers dressed as metropolitan bishops that they used the sacred vessels with a mixture of mustard and vinegar for their parody of the mass and that they paraded the streets on asses in this guise and hailed the patriarch himself with obscene cries and gestures the treasures left by theodora were soon dissipated on these ruffians and on michael's favorite charioteers and the golden curiosities made by theophilus were melted down to eke out the failing exchequer and when michael was told that the enemies of the empire were once more pressing on its narrowed frontiers he callously ordered that the line of signal fires which were wont to announce the inroad of the enemy from the distant provinces should be abandoned so that his chariot races 
might not be interrupted. Such was the spectacle which Theodora had to contemplate for ten weary years. Nor can she have been unconscious how deeply she was responsible for it. At length, in 866, the infamous career of her brother came to a close, and she was free to return to the court. A new favorite had arisen and displaced Bardas. A handsome groom in the imperial service, Basil the Macedonian, had caught the fancy of Michael. When Bardas one day denounced a noble for not saluting him in the street, as he passed in the gorgeous robe of a Caesar, a dignity to which Michael raised him in 865, the noble was deposed from office and Basil put in his place. Basil was married, but the besotted emperor forced him to divorce his wife and marry Eudocia Ingerina, and as Michael retained Eudocia as his own mistress, he brought his willing sister Thecla from her nunnery and made her the mistress of Basil. Bardas was now alarmed and perceived that either he or Basil must die. I need not enter into the sordid details. Enough to say that Basil and Michael decoyed the Caesar from the city, after a solemn oath on the cross and the sacrament, which were held before them by the patriarch, that they had no design on his life, and murdered him. This occurred on Whit Monday, 866. On the following Saturday, Basil was crowned and anointed co-emperor of the Romans. To this blood-stained and sordid court, Theodora did not hesitate to return as soon as Bardas was slain. One of the chroniclers tells an anecdote which would, if one dare reproduce it in full, give some idea of the atmosphere which she breathed. Michael one day summoned her to come and receive the blessing of the patriarch, who was with him. She entered and bent in inobservant reverence before the vested figure beside her son, and she was, to the loud delight of Michael, startled by an outrage that the rudest peasant would hardly suffer to be offered to his mother. It was the infamous mock patriarch Grillus, perpetrating his coarsest joke. This, however, seems to have occurred before her abdication, and she seems, after the murder of Bardas, to have lived chiefly in the Anthemian palace across the water. Unfortunately, the last scene in the squalid reign of her son shows that she still tolerated his excesses. Basil, in turn, had seen a new favorite arise and threaten his hope of inheriting the empire. In a drunken fit, Michael had put his purple slippers on a vulgar servant, a man who had formerly rowed in the galleys, for praising his chariot-driving, and brutally observed to the cheerful Eudocia who sat beside him, that the man was more fit for the purple than her husband. Basil, if not Eudocia, concluded that the emperor must be assassinated, and before long Theodora provided them with an opportunity. I am not for a moment suggesting that Theodora was aware of their intention, but this last appearance of hers on the stage of history is a painful close of her career. She invited Michael to sup and stay at her palace after he had spent a day hunting on the Asiatic side of the water. Such an invitation might be innocent, even virtuous, if there were a design to separate the young emperor from his associates, and, perhaps, endeavor to counsel him. 
but we find that his usual court accompanied him, and the evening was spent in drunken debauch. The new favourite, Basilicius, and Michael were put to bed in a drunken condition. Basil, with whom was Eudochia, had slipped from the room and tampered with the fastenings of their doors, and in the middle of the night Theodora awoke to hear the clash of swords and cries of hurrying men. Michael and Basilicius had been murdered, and Basil and Eudochia were hastening to Constantinople to secure the palace. The last glimpse we have of St. Theodora is when she and her daughters convey the remains of the wretched emperor to the city for interment in the great marble tombs of the kings. It was the autumn of 866, and as the Greek church celebrates her festival on 11th February, we may assume that she lived a few months afterwards in sad, if not penitent, obscurity. Few in modern times, even of those who share her creed, would venture to describe her as the glory and ornament of her sex. No woman of high character could have been betrayed into the criminal blunders which Theodora committed, however exalted she may have considered her ultimate aim to be. Yet we may grant that she was rather tainted by the pitiful casuistry of her time than evil in disposition and the historical memorial of her life-work is a sufficiently terrible punishment of her errors. It remains briefly to dismiss the empresses Eudochia and Thecla. On the morning after the murder, Eudochia Ingerina sat proudly by the side of her husband in the glorious robes and jewels of a reigning empress, as he went to the great church to consecrate his empire to Christ she enjoyed her dignity for about fifteen years but the only incident recorded of her is that she was detected by her husband in a liaison with a steward of the table thecla was discarded at the death of her brother and passed to less exalted lovers some years after his accession she sent a servant with a petition to basil who lives with your mistress at present the emperor cynically asked Neotokomites, the man promptly replied. Neotokomites was flogged and put in a monastery, and Thecla was flogged and robbed of the greater part of her fortune. It is the last glimpse we have of the family of St. Theodora. End of section 10